Hey folks, Jared here. This week we are back in East Asia talking to Takuya Matsuda about his paper, Japan's Post-Cold War Security Policy Trajectory, Maritime Realism. We're also rapidly closing in on the submission deadline for the next phase of Project Trident. This is your opportunity to shape the future of maritime security. Our next theme is regional strategies, and we partnered with the Okuska Council for Asia-Pacific Studies, Dominican Naval Command and Staff College, and the Institute for Tsikaitspolitik in Kiel, Germany. Submissions are due August 31st, so get those in now. You can find more information on our website at simsec.org. We're also seeking volunteers to assist with the back-end production of Sea Control. Volunteers would be sitting in on interviews, assisting with sound editing and production, and helping transcribe episodes. Contact Sea Control at simsec.org if you're interested. Finally, just want to advertise one more time for Simsec Podcast Network and our second podcast feed, The Bilge Pumps. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you download your podcasts. It's a more low-key, slightly less serious approach to current events in the maritime domain and naval history by three historians. This week's episode was on small navies. Check them out wherever you download your podcast. With that, I'll turn it over to Kimber's men. Aloha, shipmates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. Today, my guest is Takuya Matsuda. Takuya is a PhD candidate in war studies at King's College London. We'll be discussing his recent paper, Explaining Japan's Post-Cold War Security Policy Trajectory, Maritime Realism. Takuya, thank you so much for joining us. I mentioned you were a PhD candidate at King's College London, but would you mind sharing a little bit more of your background with our listeners? Thanks so much for having me, Gerald. It's, it's a great honor to be on our podcast. This is actually my first podcast appearance, so I hope I do well today. As you kindly mentioned, I, I'm working on my dissertation that looks into great power relations and alliance politics at King's College London's War Studies Department. So in my research, I try to explain the driving sources of great power competition and the role that alliance relations play in those dynamics. I'm usually based in London, United Kingdom, but I'm talking to you today from uh, Tokyo, Japan, where I have been weathering the pandemic since March. I was also based in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years for master's studies at Johns Hopkins Studies. Nice. Well, thank you for sharing and for joining us today. Uh, just a reminder, all of our opinions are personal opinions and not representative of any institutions with which we may be otherwise associated. So, Takuya, we use realism and a host of other terms here that may be unfamiliar unless you have some background with international relations theory. I want to start by asking you to define a few of the terms for the listeners, but specifically liberalism and realism. Sure, Gerald. There's actually a lot of cover when it comes to our theory, but I'll try to keep it as simple as possible here. So first of all, realism basically sees the world as an anarchy. So states strive for their own survival under a different international system, which is basically a self-help system. So according to realism, the main mechanism that informs the international system is the balance of power, which is, you know, I'm sure that some folks in the audience know this term, but what, you know, what, what the balance of power system is, is that, you know, states seek to pursue a power equilibrium by developing its own power, including both military and economic power, or seek alliances to balance against the stronger state. When you talk about power, one thing that probably comes up to mind is military power, but I would, uh, I think it's worth mentioning that economic power is also a major component of power in the balance of power dynamics. Because first of all, you know, to begin with, a state cannot invest in its military without possessing the wealth to do so. So realism does portray a little bit of a pessimistic view of the world where states have to like, you know, compete for their own survivals. But on the other hand, liberalism seeks to portray a much more optimistic picture of the world. So liberalism 
emphasizes more, uh, you know, roles of institutions and shared values and how they could sort of, you know, construct a better world order. Thanks. So why has it been difficult to apply liberalism and realism to the Indo-Pacific? So, in fact, to be a bit more accurate here, uh, it's not that realism is not applicable to the Indo-Pacific. Japan has been pretty responsive to changes in the balance of power, and Japanese foreign policy has been shaped by a change in the international system. So, in other words, Japan as a state behaves in a realist manner. However, what's unique about the Indo-Pacific is the way the balance of power dynamics manifests itself. Worse, it's, it's a bit different from, say, continental Europe, uh, just because it's basically animated by a maritime space. So international relations theory has been heavily reliant on empirical examples derived from continental Europe's. So a lot of concepts we, uh, we use in international relations have been formed by cases where land powers play a larger role. So in a continental sphere, expansion of power is often you know, done through the conquest of land, which actually makes it zero-sum in nature. So as a result, like in a continental domain, states may balance against this power that is emerging or rising or trying to become dominant dominant in a given system. However, in the Indo-Pacific, the main contest of powers is occurring in a maritime space. So first of all, you know, if you're a maritime state, you enjoy what we call the stopping power of waters. So if you're a country like Japan, which is an island country, you're not necessarily concerned about territorial conquest that may jeopardize homeland defense, like in continental Europe. Obviously, yes, and Japan does care about defending islands, such as the Senkaku Islands, but these concerns rather stem from a broader, a much broader security interest or concern uh, over sea lines of communications or sea control. And also, in addition, uh, the sea line communication is actually vital for common trade, and these are actually global public goods. So they're actually not necessarily a zero-sum-based system. So it's actually rather in the interest of all concerned parties to collaborate and invest in, you know, defending and developing a stable maritime order. So as a result, um, states, you know, that are concerned of access to sea lines of communications align instead of balanced against the dominant naval power. And that kind of, that explains how the U.S.-Japan alliance works, you know, because like if you just simply follow the prediction of realism, like, you know, powers balance against the dominant power. But here, you can see how Japan is actually closely aligning with the dominant naval power uh, that is the United States here in the Western Pacific. You know, so we're actually not fully equipped with useful theory to explain state behavior in a maritime-centric order, even though it is increasingly becoming one of the main theories of great power competition of our times. So my paper is about a, you know, attempt to tackle these challenges in the literature. Thanks. And your paper is really about post-Cold War Japan. So during the Cold War, Japanese foreign policy is really based on the Yoshida Doctrine. Can you explain what the Yoshida Doctrine was? So the Yoshida Doctrine is basically Japan's Cold War strategy where Tokyo focused on post-war economic reconstruction while relying on the United States for national defense. So this allowed Japan's focus more on economic, pursuing economic prosperity instead of spending too much in bolstering its defense poacher. So this is named after Prime Minister Shigeru Yoshida, who also signed the uh, who signed the San Francisco Treaty, uh, which uh, allowed Japan to regain independence after the war, and he's one of the first prime ministers of independent post-war Japan. So this doctrine actually resonates with economic statecraft, which informed the containment strategy during the early stage of the Cold War, be more specific before the Cold Korean War. So if you take the Marshall Plan for example, like the Marshall Plan was designed to assist Western European nations to reconstruct economies so that they can develop their own resilience against to resist Soviet expansionism in Europe. 
So this is like, you know, this is like the economic power component of balance of power. The United States adopts a similar strategy toward Japan, which we call the reverse, reverse course. So as the name reverse course suggests, it reversed the original occupation plan, a policy that focused more on, you know, demilitarization and democratization of Jap Japan's political and social economic system. So Prime Minister Yoshida took advantage of these two trends, like first, the economic stakeback component, America's uh, earlier Cold War strategy, and also legacy of the earlier stage of the occupation where the focus more on democratization. So he set up a strategy where Japan continue, can continue to focus on economic development while investing not too much in military spending. Since you know, the Shida Doctrine prioritized economic prosperity over national defense, a lot of observers tend to associate this doctrine with pacifism that has animated Japan, Japan's security policy. So as a result, there's been a lot of debates whether Japan's increasingly proactive security policies in the past decade or so are consistent or, or whether it's an aberration from the Yoshida Doctrine. However, I argue that this doctrine has been a guiding principle for Japan's overall national strategy that portrays itself as a trading nation and hence a maritime state, which has endured the end of the Cold War. In that sense, the Yoshida Doctrine is still relevant in explaining Japan's foreign policy. And what actually changed was that the fact that relative stability under bipartisanship during the Cold War, came to an end. After the end of the Cold War, the Western Pacific increasingly became contested space, and Japan has been urged to focus more on national defense, especially its naval power, to maintain its position as a trading or uh, slash maritime state. However, some of you, especially from the U.S. perspective, the shoe doctrine might simply sound like an example of free writing. So while these views are, you know, to a certain degree valid, I would say, but I would rather argue that relative stability under a bipolar system during the Cold War allowed Japan's focus being on economic development and only maintain a military force that's sufficient so as not to create a power vacuum in itself. So there was an interesting article on the Wall Street Journal last week, which highlighted how Japan's strategic shift, you know, how it shifted from the North, namely the Soviet Union, to the South, which is maritime space as the Cold War came to an end. So the Shia doctrine sounds like a free riding sort of policy, but this was you know, it kind of does illuminate how the bipolar system under coal was relatively stable, at least in East Asia, and it afforded Japan's underinvest and its armed forces. Thanks. You start your paper by describing some of the elements of Japan's increasingly assertive foreign policy to include the establishment of a National Security Council and the publication of a national security strategy for the first time in December 2013. Why are those important steps and what do they allow Japan to do? So, first of all, I mean, I think these steps demonstrate how Japan is increasingly becoming a practice security player in Indo-Pacific. So, as some of you might be aware, I mean, Japan has this passive constitution, Article 9, which has been long been a break on Japan's security policies. So it has a lot of legal, it put a lot of legal constraint on Japan's use of force. And as I mentioned earlier, the Cold War actually allowed Japan to, you know, remain reactive to strategic environment out there. So the, these, you know, these moves actually signify how Japan is moving towards pressing itself to become a proactive player instead of a reactive player. So first of all, mentioned the NSC. So this bolsters Japan's national security decision-making apparatus for a whole-of-the-gun approach. And the national security strategy, which is the first uh, of its kind that Japan actually published, is to Japan's policy orientation as a security player. So one of the major takeaways uh, the national security strategy, for example, which was released in December 2013, is that it describes Japan as a maritime state that pursues open and stable seas. So it kind of, the national security strategy highlights how, uh, you know, what sort of policy direction Japan is trying to 
move towards. And actually, um, lastly, I, I think another point that's worth mentioning is that Japan reinterpreted Article 9 of the Constitution to allow Japan to exercise the right to collective self-defense in specific cases. So actually, Japan, you know, there were strict legal constraints on the use of force in Japan. So Japan was not even able to exercise the right to collective self-defense, though it's close out of the United States. So that's it's been a controversial reform, but Japan is slowly trying to untangle its legal constraint so that it could act as a proactive security player in the region and also, you know, transform the U.S.-Japan alliance into something that's more, you know, a genuine military alliance where we can collaborate and work together in a better way. Are these changes driven by internal factors like the Abe administration, external factors, the rise of China, or some combination of both? So, you know, my short answer will be that Japan's foreign policy has been mainly been shaped by external factors, such as changes in the regional balance of power. So in particular, I would argue that end of bipolarity, end of the Cold War, has been a huge turning point for Japan. So as I described in the paper, the end of the Cold War was a trigger for Japan to reconsider its role in the world. And Tokyo gradually adapted to the new strategic environment over the years. So... Uh, you know, an uh, interesting example here is that during the first Gulf War, Japan was not able to, you know, send its self-defense force troops to to the Middle East, but contributed billions of dollars to the war effort. But they were not necessarily appreciated in a way that they thought is appropriate. So that's when Japan started to realize that what we call this checkbook diplomacy is no longer viable in the post-Cold War world. So. Japan started to slowly adapt to the new strategic environment, reconsider its role in the world, and then, you know, that sort of culminated into Japan's proactive security posture. But, you know, it is true that there were some geostrategic shifts in um, the region as well. So the fact that China's borders were relatively secure, uh, which allowed Beijing to expand the seas, is actually one of the major geopolitical shifts in the Pacific. So, you know, the Great Wall of China actually does reveal how China has been more concerned about its continental borders instead of its maritime space. Like continental borders may have kept them busy from uh, investing in the seas, but you know, right now, like their borders are relatively secure. Though we have we had a bit of a skirmish skirmish with India, but basically secure. So they can afford to invest in the seas, and that has been a major game changer in, in the Pacific. So I would argue that Japan's foreign policy has been driven by the end of bipolarity, end of the Cold War, and also by this geostrategic shift in the uh, in the Western Pacific. And you know, a lot of people do tend to emphasize the role that personalities leaders play in shaping foreign policy. And a lot of people have attributed Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's uh, nationalistic tendencies as a driver behind Japan's practice security policies. And I would say that you know, to a certain degree, it's true because all these security reforms are very controversial. And but you know, and he, you know, Prime Minister Abe had a political capital to push through all these reforms that are very hard to do if you you know if it's a short term administration. However, you know, like like in the US, even between US administrations, which has uh, contrasting worldviews, there are a lot of continuity than people actually imagine. Like, you know, between President Carter and President Reagan, these are totally different to primary uh, presidents, but when it comes to, you know, their approach to the Persian Gulf control, to Afghanistan, there's actually a lot of continuity than people imagine. So Personalities matter, internal factors matter, but I would argue that external factors play a larger role in as underlying sort of variable that change, change that you know transformed Japan's security policy uh, in the course of the past three decades. You've introduced the term maritime realism to describe Japan's strategy. Why did you choose that term, and how would you describe it? 
So the reason I chose this trade uh, term is that you know it seeks to illustri- illustrate how the integration of strategic studies informed by geographical factors, such as the role of navies, could be useful in advancing existing international relations theory to enhance our understanding of how states behave under a predominantly maritime context. So what maritime realism and explain Japan's security policy is that you know it, it actually basically argues that Japan's security policy is best best understood as a realist policy approach drawing upon maritime strategy. This concept illuminates how, uh, Japan's version of real, real, real politique, where it infuses responses to geopolitical realities and its focus as a trading nation concerned with uh, stable access to seas. So that's why I introduced two independent variables in my uh, paper, balance of power calculations, the realist part, and also the secure access to the global commons, uh, namely the sea lines of communication, and how, how these two variables have shaped uh, Japan's security policy trajectory. So um, what a maritime realism-based strategy does is that it aims to, to both support the status quo in the Western Pacific related to American naval primacy in this region, and also proactively promote a maritime order based on adherence to core principles of the rule of law, law at sea. So Japan's you know, uh, security policy has been, first of all, to facilitate U.S. commitment to the region in order to preserve balance of power favorable to Washington and also Tokyo. And also, by you know, through this, it assures Japan's undisrupted access to maritime commons, given its unique geographic situation as a maritime state. And also, in addition, uh, I think that maritime realism also illuminates how access to global public goods is one of the major sources that drives uh, drive great power competition. So I think this ongoing pandemic here uh, has in fact highlighted how global public goods, like sea lines and communications and also uh, supply chains, are increasingly become, being contested. So in other words, a maritime realism may be useful in clarifying find a source and mechanism of great power competition, which has become which has become an organizing principle of international politics. What initially led the Japanese to begin investing more heavily in its navy and maritime security? So when you look at you know post nineteen forty five Japanese um, security policy, um, it's in actually in nineteen eighties when Japan started to focus on defending sea lines and communication. So this happened more. Uh, you know, through the context of burden sharing, it was the United States uh, during the uh, Reagan administration. But still, I mean, we had we had the pacifist constitution that you know uh, restrained Japan from using force. But you know, um, burden sharing through defending the sea lines of communication, you know, resonated pretty well with Japan's you know national strategy to focus on trade. Uh, so um, it was pretty compatible with the Yoshida Doctrine back then. But still, like um, as I mentioned a bit earlier, um, Japan's defense posture during the Cold War was mainly um, geared towards the Soviets in the North. So, you know, maritime security was not necessarily the main focus of Japan's security policy back then. But the end of the Cold War, the name of the, namely the end of bipolarity, um, seems to have shifted focus to the seas along with China's uh, you know, maritime expansion. And also. Um, you know, um, as you know, the Western Pacific, the Indo-Pacific becomes more contested, and U.S. naval primacy is, you know, unfortunately being a bit contested nowadays. You know, Japan is, um, you know, taking, uh, you know, maritime security a lot more seriously in order to, you know, maintain access to global public goods, that which is the access to the communications. 
You made an argument that maritime realism contains aspects of governance and then referenced Ken Booth's Trinity of Naval Roles. I don't think most of our listeners are familiar with Booth's work. What are those roles and what function do they play in your argument for maritime realism? So Ken Booth argues that navies have three main functions, which are diplomatic, policing, and military roles. So uh, diplomatic and diplomatic and security roles include sea control, power projection, and deterrence. Uh, and on, on, on the other hand, the policing role involves law enforcement and governance. So when we talk about great power competition in the Pacific, we naturally think of the military roles uh, such as power projection and deterrence. However, when you recall the nature of you know the problems in the eastern side of China Seas, you can see how it is actually a matter of good governance so it's about you know like you know uh, enforcing the rules of law uh, in these oceans and um, so actually the role of navies are not limited to military roles but actually you know they have a very important role which is first policing roles uh, which focuses more, more on peacekeeping and fostering governance so given these multiple functions navies are are a crucial tool of statecraft shaping a country's contribution to national security and place in the world. So, actually, for Japan, like you know, navies are relatively pacifist sort of uh, you know uh, entity. So, so for Japan, it, it's been the best best way to sort of you know best uh, for Japan to you know for deterrence and both deterrence and also express you know uh, to you know foster governance and promote uh, liberal international values for good governance in the seas. So since the role of navies involve both military and policing roles, which are pretty contrasting, um, that's the reason realist and liberal internationalist languages can easily coexist when discussing great power competition in the Pacific. So, you know, when you talk about great power you know, in the Pacific, you see you hear a lot of discussion about great power competition, obviously, but you hear a lot, a lot of, you know, uh, uh, observers uh, talking about ways to defend the liberal national order. And these are very, you know, contrasting concepts, but they can easily coexist because, um, you know, Campbell's Trinity of naval roles sort of, you know, offers a comprehensive picture of how navies function. And that also, you know, this particular, you know, nature of the role of navies does inform my theory of maritime realism. So how does Japan view the regional balance of power and how does it view its place in that balance? So if I were talked chronologically since the end of the Cold War, I mean, Japan was actually concerned about potential U.S. retrenchment for the region uh, in the early 1990s. However, from the U.S. side, U.S. side, like that, there was a lot of talks about this uncertainty over U.S. commitment. So the U.S. side actually, you know, uh, reaffirmed its commitment in 1995, Joseph Nye Initiative, and also in 2000, year 2000, uh, Richard Armitage sent out a report uh, which actually reaffirmed U.S. commitment, but also at the same time encourage Japan to do more in its defense. So actually, the right to collective self-defense reform argument discussion that I mentioned earlier in 2015, that reform uh, was, you know, is a combination of the reports that came out and the issue of silence. So it's not an exaggeration to argue that Japan's security policy in the earlier half of the past three decades were shaped by the perceived need to, you know, facilitate U.S. commitments to the region. And you can see that in, you know, Japan's decision to send uh, the self-defense ground forces to Iraq, Iraq in, uh, in the 2000s. In the past three decades, China started to expand militarily and started to rise, and Tokyo started to view China's rise uh, as transforming the regional balance of power in an unfavorable manner. 
So that's why Japan started to you know become a proactive steer player in itself. And you know, um, while Japan has been embracing this identity of merit as a maritime state, which I argue has been consistent since 1945, it's still actually very ambiguous what sort of security actor Japan sees become. Japan's recent cancellation of the Aegis Ashore Plan and filtration with strike capabilities against foreign adversaries underscores this uncertainty where, where Japan is headed. But in overall, I, I would argue that the best course of action for Japan is probably to stick with the maritime state sort of route. So yeah, and also in terms of U.S.-Japan alliance, so in Japan's case, the rise of China, especially you know, concerned over Beijing's maritime expansion, has made it easier for the U.S. and Japan's strategic priorities compatible, which resulted in the steady development of the alliance, uh, this alliance relationship over the past three decades. So you know, military alliances are basically about you know joint war planning. So for Japan and the U.S., they both have concerns over access to global commons, sea lines of communications in the region. So their defense priorities, potential war plans, are easily compatible, and so. You know, these changes in the regional balance of power, you know, uh, urged Japan to align closely with the U.S. and make the necessary steer reforms to strengthen the alliance over the years. So maritime realism actually offered a sound explanation on development of this bilateral alliance in the past couple of decades. And also in terms of regional balance of power, I would probably highlight Dr. Toshi Yoshihara's CSBA report, uh, Dragging Against the Sun, Chinese views of sea, Japanese sea power, and this actually does offer a pretty concerning trend uh, in the shifting naval imbalance between China and Japan. Japan, like, you know, there's a lot to probably think about when it comes to naval balance of power in the region. And that leads directly into my next question. Is Japan trying to contain China? So the short answer is no. The, you know, the concept of maritime realism tries to do is that it, it tries to underscore how Japan's proactive security posture does not necessarily transform Japan as an aggressive player or not, Japan's intentions are not actually to contain China. I mean, it is understandable to a certain degree that China sees you know, things this way because, first of all, the you know, Japanese archipelago is a natural barrier for China's maritime expansion. And initially, Beijing welcomed the, you know, the fact that U.S.-Japan allies endured the end of the Cold War. So China, given its wartime memory, views Japan as a potential aggressor. And so actually, interestingly, Beijing saw Japan's alliance with the U.S. as placing lid on Japan for becoming a militaristic power that might threaten China once again, which is like you know, the way European powers uh, view Germany and Europe. And also from the U.S. side as well, like, you know, Joseph Knife, who initiated one of the major security policy policies in the 1990s, which reaffirmed U.S. commitments to the region, also articulates that there was no intention to contain China back then when he reaffirmed U.S. commitment to the region. Nevertheless, like China does you know, argue that U.S.-Japan alliance, a company with Japan's uh, Tokyo's upgraded defense culture, has been, is a demonstration of Washington's alleged zero-sum, and you know, it's a cold, they call it, Beijing calls you know, strengthening U.S.-Japan alliance and U.S. alliance system in the region itself as zero-some sort of Cold War mentality-based uh, strategy that's aimed towards contained the rise of China. So, you know, there's, uh, you know, even though the U.S. and Japan doesn't, you know, really argue that they are trying to contain China, the Chinese side see it a bit differently, uh, which is, which we, we call a security dilemma in international relations jury terms, where, you know, if when one side tries to enhance its jury posture, it, you know, it automatically um, threatens your opponent, and then both sides, you know, keep on upgrading capabilities, and there's a spiral where both sides feel insecure. So that's basically what is kind of going on in, in the Pacific right now. 
But actually, I mean, one th- important thing I think is uh, it, 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 one important thing that's important to bear in mind, I think, is the fact that China's rise has been facilitated by Japan and also by the U.S. Um, in the 1970s and 80s, when the Soviet Union was our all our common you know um, enemy. Um, so in that regards, I mean, you know, Japan actually you know has helped me. Japan uh, helped China build steel plant and all that. So, you know, when you look at the rise of China, I think we need a more of a nuanced approach in explaining how, you know, regional powers, you know, shifted their approach towards China's rise because there's a lot more story behind it and how this all happened. How is Japan working with its neighbors with like-minded interests? And I'm thinking specifically of Australia, India, South Korea, Vietnam, and the Philippines. So yeah, let me start with the Quad. So the Quad, as I mentioned, it's, it's a you know it's not an alliance, but it's like a security sort of like collaborative you know platform among the U.S., Japan, Australia, and India. So actually, Japan, I mean, is probably one of the first countries among the four who um, you know started to promote this idea. So, and in the year 2007, in front of members of the Indian Parliament, Prime Minister Abe unveiled this idea idea in a speech entitled "As Confluence of the Two Seas." which are the Indian and Pacific Oceans. This is probably the first occasion where the head of government illuminated a strategic framework that includes both the Indo-India and the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Oceans, which, you know, led to this term Indo-Pacific. And also in 2012, Prime Minister Abe also published a commentary entitled Asia's Democratic uh, Story Diamond, which became the foundation of this quadrilateral uh, collaboration. And also, you know, the Bar exercise among Japan, U.S., and India is also one of those platforms where these like-minded uh, countries try and get together. They're not very really stereolized, but I'm sure that with a lot of things going on with China and Hong Kong and Taiwan, um, this might come into something in the future. And you also mentioned Vietnam and the Philippines. So this, you know, for these two countries, um, Japan does more of a naval diplomacy, policing role type of thing where Japan has provided vessels to the coast guards of these respective countries. And, you know, what Japan has been doing is mainly capacity building measures for these countries uh, that have claims in South China Sea. And South Korea is a tricky one because, uh, you know, South Korea does benefit a lot from the sea lines of communication, uh, for sure. But it's just that their focus is not on maritime space. They are more focused on the North, on North Korea, obviously. And as a result, they're focused more on the relationship between, their relationship with continental powers which is China. So actually, I wrote a Warner Rocks article on this dynamic between Japan and South Korea and how these different geopolitical orientations um, make it hard for these two countries to collaborate with a good friend of mine. So uh, if you're interested, please check it out. Yeah, you've mentioned a number of different articles in the course of our recording today. And I will say for our listeners, there's going to be links to all of those in the show notes. Go check them out. In fact, hey, Maybe we'll put a note in. You should check them out before you listen to the podcast because it's great background information to have and informs this discussion. But to go back to what you were just talking about regarding the international maritime commons, does Japan have a legitimate reason to fear loss of access? Unfortunately, I would say yes, because, you know, China has been pretty, I would say, aggressive in the East China Seas. And, you know, when if the Senkaku Islands are taken, um, Japan will fear, I mean, Japan, you know, they, China could actually go target towards the Okinawa. So actually, you know, China's maritime expansion is very a huge concern that there's a huge concern over China's maritime expansion that, you know, Japan, it might lead to Japan losing access to Southern communications. And especially like the South China Sea is like Caribbeans in, you know, in the Western Hemisphere. So whoever dominates the South China Sea could 
literally control the entire region. So that, so you know, if you look at how China is expanding in these uh, seas, I mean, I want to be, you know, I hope to become be more optimistic here. But you know, if you look at a worst case scenario, I would argue that there is, there is, you know, there is legitimate reasons for Japan's fear access to these sea lines of communication. That's the reason Japan is working closely with the United States to make sure that, you know, these seas are open and free for all nations. Thanks. That's unfortunately all the time that we have for today. Takuya, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? So I think the easiest way to find me online is to follow me on Twitter at Takuya Matsuda one. So Takuya Matsuda is actually a very common name in Japan, so that's why I put a number there to my Twitter account. And also what I'm working on right now is like um so both Panic World access to global public goods will most likely become one of the main superiors of competition among great powers. So I'm hoping to build on my paper on maritime realism that we talked about today to consider ways to explain great power competition in a post-pandemic world. And most importantly, I'll keep on working on my dissertation that examines uh, line strategies that great powers adopt in times of power shift. And you know, in overall, I'll continue my research on ways to explain the ongoing great power competition in the Pacific. Thank you again for joining us. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Sea Control is produced by Keegan Ingersoll. Shit,